You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come join our community or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. Uh, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Oh my goodness, we have a really fun passage today. I'm so excited about it. Uh, we are going to have some fun this morning as we look at this. Uh, so many good things in it. I want you to see it. I want you to study and follow along as we do it. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28 today, as we continue in our series called Following and we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What did, what did Jesus say about what it means to follow him, to be a disciple? We talk very often about making disciples of other people. I mean, what's even the goal of that? What are, what's, what are we aiming at? What does that look like? What, are, are we doing that? Are we able to be a Paul saying, imitate me as I follow Christ? Would we feel comfortable saying that? Um, well, it starts with us looking at the words in the life of Jesus to make sure that we're following him. So let's look here. Luke chapter 9, verse 28 says this. Now, about eight days after saying these things, he took with him Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. Here's Jesus taking his disciples to find some solitude to pray with them up on the mountainside. Now, the mountain is not mentioned by name. The location seems significant. Tops of mountains have been historically, for the people of God, places to encounter God. I think that the early readers would have made some of those connections with the text here. Mount Sinai, right? Where Moses has this amazing encounter with God, receiving the Ten Commandments from God. The, the mountain immersed in a cloud of smoke, right? And God was there, and God met with Moses, I think about in 1 Kings when Elijah was called on uh, to defeat uh, the gods of Baal uh, on Mount Carmel, right? And this amazing thing that God did there on that mountainside. Or when Elijah was in a cave distressed about Israel forsaking the covenant of God, the word of the Lord told Elijah to go out and stand on a mountain before the Lord. And it was there that God passed before him gave a message to Elijah through a whisper. We still think about mountains as significant places to encounter God. If you go on a retreat or a trip, you might hear a high school student come back and say it was a mountaintop experience, a place where they met with God, something significant in their life and heart happening. So Jesus goes on a mountain to pray. He could have done this where he was staying, but he doesn't. In this narrative, that is important. And to the original audience, too, I think that they're keyed in to this idea of a mountain and going up there to pray. And he takes with them three disciples. And I, and I love this. It's sort of a running thing throughout Luke that you see him pulling these three aside. There's something special with the discipleship and the mentoring and the teaching of Peter, James, and John that we see throughout the life of Jesus. So they're going to be part of this. Whatever's going to happen, they're going to be part of it, and they're going to get to see something special. And they get up to the mountain, and, and the time is spent praying. 
It's quiet up there. You don't have the crowds. You don't have the questioning or the testing from the lawyers or the Pharisees. You don't even have your full group of disciples. It's (sighs) exhale, the mountaintop breeze overlooking the Sea of Galilee. We might find it hard to connect with God in our prayer life or even meet with him without being distracted. It's no different for the three disciples because here they are on a mountain with Jesus and they're fighting sleep in the midst of this prayer time. As amazing as this moment seems of Jesus praying on this mountainside, it's really not anything new. In Luke 5, Jesus retreated to a desolate place to pray. In Luke 6, it says that Jesus went up to a mountain to pray where he continued in prayer all night. Earlier in the chapter, it says that Jesus was praying and all of a sudden he asked the question to his disciples, hey, who do crowds say that I am? And the disciples say, John the Baptist, or others say, Elijah. Some say a prophet that's risen from old. This prayer time was rather common, but it was something that turned into something very uncommon. It was very different. Look at verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. That's pretty wild, right? Other gospel accounts, when you read about it, in this moment, they use the word transfigured. Mark uses this word transfigured, meaning changed or transformed to take on a different physical form or appearance. Jesus, their friend, this guy that they've spent all this time with is changing right before their eyes. And Luke is trying to describe something that he has never seen before and something that has not been witnessed or experienced by other people people before. He's like, his face um, was altered. I mean, that's how Luke can describe it. My brain goes a lot of different directions with that. How about yours? His clothes dazzling white. There's a word we don't use enough, right? Try to work dazzling into your week at some point. Mark, when you read Mark's account of it, he talks about Jesus' clothes being whiter than you could bleach them. It's not how Jesus was when they came up on top of the mountaintop. This is other than anything human or anything that they've experienced, which is saying a lot because they've spent a lot of time with Jesus and seen him do some pretty amazing things by this point. They know Jesus, but Jesus has been altered in this moment. See, here's the thing. I want to know more about this. How is his face altered? I would do anything for Luke to give more details about how glorious this was. I would love to know what Peter, James, and John thought when they saw their friend transfigured in front of them. But Luke does not zoom in there. I don't think he zooms in there because it's actually not what's most amazing about what's about to happen on this mountain. And it's also just not what the passage is about. It's just a side detail that we get that is sort of fun. But look at verse 30 as we start to see what this is all about. It says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Two men show up, and there they are talking to this altered Jesus. 
It's Moses and it's Elijah. Now we read Moses and Elijah, and at least for me, like first thought is like, isn't that a little weird? Aren't they dead? Right? Or maybe you read that and you just think it's like, this just turned into like an all-star game of some kind. You're like, wow, all the stars showing up for this one. Moses in the house. Elijah is here. Now that's more along the lines of what the first century reader would have read when they read it. They would have started to think specifically about the connection of Moses and Elijah with everything that they know about the Old Testament narrative. Their significance, Moses and Elijah, and what that might mean for this moment. Their significance of their history with the covenant of Israel with God. So they hear Moses and they think, man, Moses, mountaintop experience Moses. The guy whose face shone after coming into the presence of God. Moses, the one who brought the law. Moses, the prophet, the hero of Israel's past. A man that made covenant with God. A man who brought the people the law. Who brought the people out of slavery for God. Moses, the chosen one from the burning bush. The one that God brought the plagues, and he saw that the one to lead Israel through the dark days of the wilderness wandering, Moses is here. See Elijah, all sorts of connections there. The prophet who spoke about the sin of the people, the prophet who defeated Baal, the prophet who spoke out against the rebellious Israel in cycles of sin. Here's the thing, these are two Highly respected. We feel that in our day, we're like, oh man, I know who they are. Those people of that time, even more so to a greater extent, these Old Testament people, heroes, alive on this mountain in front of them. These ones who have had their own mountaintop experience, now on this mountaintop with their feet experiencing it with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. Their presence is significant. God could have brought anyone for this moment, for this transfiguration. But it's these two people for a purpose and for a reason. Everything that Moses spoke of, everything that Moses represented, everything that Elijah warned of, everything that Elijah represented, this covenant that they had committed to and represented, everything that they taught, attach all of that with their names as you read the rest of this narrative. All of that is what we're supposed to hold on to as we read through this. It says here that they're speaking about something very specific, his departure. Listen, if you could squeeze this text physically, out of it would come dripping Old Testament references. The Old Testament is just saturated in this text, which is just another reason why we need to know our Old Testament and understand how that fits into it. It's just pouring out of this all sorts of Old Testament language and references. We could honestly spend the whole time just talking about those references because here's the thing. This word here, talking about his departure, this word here, departure, in Greek is exodus. It's 
referring to the exodus of Jesus in regards to his death. That's what he's talking to these two about. But the word is exodus. For that word exodus to be used about a conversation that Jesus is having with Moses, the one who led through the exodus out of slavery, is something so sweet. Something just showing how intentionally breathed out each word of scripture is. So they're talking about Jesus' death. His death, which is why Jesus came. His death, which brings life. It's in his death that there's forgiveness of sins. But in his death is also the fulfillment of the law. Everything that Elijah and Moses represented and talked about, the promises that they alluded to, that's what's being discussed here. In this moment, they're hearing from God's son about the coming fulfillment of everything that they lived for and spoke about that would be to come. Isn't that cool? I got to say here, um, and I was talking to my dad about this this week, just how cool this passage is. It, And he brought this up. It's so fun to think about. For a long time, I felt devastated for Moses that he never got to the promised land. You remember, he strikes the rock and God punishes him and he doesn't get to go. Everything he went through, everything that he brought Israel through, right? For striking the rock. To never get to put his feet on the promised land. Only to be able to stand on a mountain and look out at the promised land. But get this, here he is. He's back on a mountain, but this time it's in the land. His feet are firmly placed in the promised land, but more than that, he stands with Jesus. He stands face to face with the Son of God, hearing about the death that was coming for Jesus, the true exodus, not from slavery, but from sin, not with a Passover blood of the Lamb, but on Passover with the blood of the Lamb of God. Bible all fits together really beautifully. Do you feel the weight and the significance and the meaning of this moment as Jesus is talking about his exodus with Moses and Elijah? Here's the thing. I read that and I, I kind of, I get really excited about it and I, I kind of want to just keep talking about that because I think that that's really cool. But here's the thing. The disciples pick up on how neat this is too. They pick up on the significance of the moment In verse 32, they start to realize, which honestly, I would just pay money to see this moment, verse 32, turn into a gif or a meme or something. Look at it here. It says, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men that stood with him. They're awake now. They're not fighting sleep during this desolate time of prayer here. They're awake now because this is something unlike anything they've ever seen. It's more than they could have ever imagined to see the greats all here together. There's Moses, there's Elijah standing here with our friend Jesus, with us on a mountaintop. Any struggle they had with sleep previously while Jesus Uh, was praying. Well, that's vanished. And they're locked into making the most of this moment. Look at verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter has a suggestion. 
as he's watching, as, as he sees that Elijah and Moses are starting to leave, man, he wants to savor the moment. He doesn't want to see this pass. And in an effort to make sure that it does not pass, he suggests making three tents. Now, the fact that Peter realizes how amazing this moment is and is trying to stay in it, that's not the problem. We all feel that. We read it and we're like, this is pretty awesome. But it says not knowing what he said. There was something about what Peter is suggesting that is off. And I've wondered about this for a while. Why build tents? I mean, how long are you looking to hang out for, guys? How long do you want to stay on this mountaintop? And why do you need three of them? Like, couldn't you all fit into one? Why three? It's one of those random things that I got to really dive into this week and study. And so here's what I found. The word tent uh, is translated to tabernacle. And so some believe that as he talks about three tents, he's referring to the shelters that the Israelites would make once a year for the Feast of Tabernacle. Feast of Tabernacle. They would build these shelters and they would live in them and it was a reminder to them to immerse themselves back into what the Israelites, their forefathers had gone through as they wandered through the wilderness, as they wandered through the desert with who? With Moses. So that makes sense to me that Peter is drawing that connection here because who is he standing with? He's standing with Moses. The one that they once a year remind themselves about the Feast of Tabernacles. So I think we mock Peter here too much of like, oh my goodness, Peter, why are you trying to build tents here and you're kind of freaking out? But actually, I think he's trying to make a sacred religious connection here to saying, hey, why not celebrate this and think about this with Moses here with us here today? The thought to create a shelter with Moses and participate with Elijah, what an opportunity. And yet, Luke says, he didn't know what he was saying. He still was getting it wrong. Here's my understanding of it today. My understanding is this. No, Peter. We aren't here to remember the departure that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. This is not about that exodus. This is about the current day exodus This is about the departure of Jesus and the fulfillment that he came to bring. This is not about honoring Moses. This is not about honoring Elijah. This is not about thinking back to this. This is entirely about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is teaching. So it's as Peter is saying these things, something starts to happen. Look at verse 34. As he's saying these things, hey, let's build these tents. Let's make this connection. Let's do this. Let's hang out. As he's saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered into the, uh, the cloud. Felt fear. I would too, right? Are we on the same page with this? A little terrifying. But... As we read this, hopefully we start to make some connections to clouds, right? This should bring all sorts of flashbacks back for us, especially with Moses and, 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 and all that stuff, back to Mount Sinai. 
and the cloud that engulfed the mountain there and just put fear into the hearts of the people. Or think about the cloud that led the Israelites through the desert during the day, the presence of God. So as we read this, a cloud immersing and engulfing, we should be in our Old Testament mindful brains thinking, here we go. Presence of God. Something is happening here. Some incredible encounter is about to happen with the people of God, which brings us to verse 35. And it says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The voice of God speaks. And when he speaks on this mountain, he doesn't give the law to Moses. It's not a whisper to Elijah that he gives. The voice speaks like the voice of God spoke at the baptism of Jesus. And he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's a new message on this mountaintop with a new focus. Here's what's wild to me. Moses and Elijah are chosen ones of God too. Wasn't Moses chosen? Think about the burning bush. Think about God's interaction saying, no, I want you to go. And Moses is like, I don't know about me, man. Like I, and he's like, no, you're the one. You're the chosen one to do this. Think about Elijah and him and, and, and the messages, literally the words of God as, as he's a prophet to the people. These are two chosen people of God. And yet in this moment, God doesn't even mention those chosen ones of God. It's not about the heroes of the past and their significance. He talks about Jesus and how Jesus is his chosen chosen one. He says, listen to him. There was a time and a place to listen to Moses. That time has passed. There was a time and a place to listen to Elijah. That time has passed. But now Jesus, Jesus is here. And God spotlights Jesus as the chosen one, different than any other chosen servant of God ever. Why? Because he says, this is my son very son of God. That's the credentials for this chosen servant of God. Listen to him. And in that moment, as the voice pronounced Jesus as the son and the chosen one, something else happens. Look at verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. happened so quickly. They're gone. Jesus is found alone. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. The moment that Peter wanted to hold on to, the moment that he wanted to signify and think about the past and everything that that was and and, and, and the law and all those things, they're gone. And all they're face to face with is Jesus Instead of holding on to the departure of the others, it's holding on to the presence of Jesus before his departure. When God pronounces Jesus as the chosen one, he symbolizes the significance and the fulfillment of Jesus in an instant as he 
pulls the heroes, the chosen ones from the past, off the scene, and they're left with Jesus alone. It's maybe one of the most, if not the most, amazing visual illustration for a teacher of all time. Because he could tell them it's just him, and God could have just said, hey, this is my chosen chosen one, listen to him. But instead of that, he adds the significance of bringing the ones that they had listened to before and they thought so far before and they fall for it in a way and they're like, this is great, let's hang out. Let's spend all this time with them. And the guy's like, no, gone, one, it's only Jesus. That's who you're following. Discipleship, following is all about following Jesus. Jesus alone listened to him. What an incredible lesson for them to learn. This following, this learning is all about Jesus. For Peter, James, and John, they received this as a clear separation of Jesus, separated out from the heroes of the past that they would have looked up to, a clear focus in on who they were to be listening to as the others that they grew up with were stripped away and Jesus shown as the fulfillment of all of those things. They're left with no shelters, no Moses, no Elijah, just Jesus. I think for us, it's a great reminder to think about our following and question if it is Jesus alone. Is he actually the focus of our desire and the focus of our following? Or is our following motivated by other things, other people or habit, or just showing up to church because that's kind of what we do on Sundays? This is just what my family did or does or whatever. See, the object of all of our worship, Jesus alone, he's the fulfillment of every promise. He's the creator, the author, sustainer of all life, deserving all of our focus, all of our following, all of our discipling, learning, student. He's the teacher. We are the learner and the servant. He is the master. We said in week one, Discipleship is all about being a learner and a follower. And today what we see very clearly is all of that learning, all of that following is all the life, the teaching, the words of Jesus alone. Listen to him and to make him our life. Is there influence in your heart that is not? Who are you following with your mind and your heart and your desires Who is shaping your character and your purpose and your family and your career and and, and, in the mountain that you might be standing on or the valley that you find yourself? Who are you following? Simple answer is Jesus. And it's really easy to say that. But that will require a transformation of your whole life that would be evident day to day, week to week, year to year. Following Jesus and Jesus alone, it revolutionizes priorities in your life in a way that is visually seen to yourself and to the people around you. And so I just ask, is it Jesus alone that you're following? I said it's a pretty cool visual illustration object lesson that God uses here in the support of Elijah and Moses and drawing them off the scene. 
Here's what's cool, though. This whole narrative is actually one illustration for a point that Jesus makes earlier. Remember how I said dialogue is really important in a passage? Who's the dialogue in this passage? Who speaks? God speaks, and who else? Peter. God speaking is very important in this passage. But we said to look for the speaking of Jesus and the dialogue of Jesus. Does Jesus speak in this passage? He does not, but his words are referenced. Look at verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John. What sayings? What did Jesus say? What might he have said that actually leads into everything that God shows and Jesus shows in this transfiguration? What sets up this teaching? Go back to verse 23. And let's read it and let's see how this fits in to what is said here. Verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John. The teaching of Jesus right before the transfiguration, right before this message about it's just Jesus and not the past, is this message where he says, one, deny yourself. To deny yourself would mean to openly confess Christ. Confess Christ, therefore put your faith in him. It's not hope in yourself. It's not faith in yourself. It's not looking to provide within yourself a spirituality within yourself or a following of yourself and your inward you know, light or whatever the world would say of following yourself and your heart and your dreams and all that stuff. Deny yourself, Jesus says, to live for Christ. He says, second of all, pick up your cross. This is said before the disciples see Jesus pick up his cross. But it was known reference that thieves would pick up a cross as they walked a one-way street to their execution. And here Jesus is saying this picking up of a cross is a daily pursuit, a daily focus to follow who? To follow Jesus. Pick up your cross and follow me, he says. Deny yourself. It's a daily pursuit to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. Then he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Following Jesus leads to life. What it means putting to death your former life is not about you. It's not about what you can lead yourself to. It's not about what anyone else can. Jesus says in this, deny all of that. Put that to death. Carry your cross. Follow me. Daily pursuit of all of who you are with everything that you can do. Follow me and me alone. And then that teaching of deny self, pick up cross, lose your life is immediately followed up with the object lesson of them brought to the mountain, them seeing Moses and Elijah, God stripping them away and saying, no, it's just Jesus to follow. 
The whole thing is an illustration of that one point that Jesus makes back in those previous teachings. Deny yourself. Pursue Jesus with all your life. Lose your life. Man, I, I don't know. Have, could we say we lost our life to follow Jesus? That everything was put down to deny ourselves, self-denial, daily pursuit, losing all of that for not any gain or benefit of ourselves so that I can look less like myself each day and more Romans 8.28 conform to the image of his son Jesus. If you're casually, casually living your life saying, yeah, it's only about Jesus and I follow Jesus, but it's not marked by denying yourself and cross-caring, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money, side note, I don't bet money, but I'd be willing to bet a lot of, it's a figure speech, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that you're still trying to set up a tent for Moses or Elijah or just about anything else in this world. If it's a split focus, you're, tr- you, you're trying to set up the tents and just relish in the moment and, and, and equally spread out. Well, no, we could have three tents, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. If, if it's not marked by denying self and an all-consuming focus on Jesus, if your life is not marked by cross-carrying devotion, a relentless pursuit of the things of Jesus and knowing him and training for godliness, life of a bondservant for only his glory, then I'd be willing to say you're probably basking in the glory of split devotion. Thinking, I give Jesus this much, isn't that enough? Well, at the same point, you're completely comfortable with portions of your heart and your life devoted to other people, other things, other pursuits, other things. It's not self-denial. Here's the thing. This is not all-star Christianity. This is not the best of the best get to this point of following Jesus. This is just what Christianity is. This is just what following means. It's out with anyone else, and it's only Jesus. And as Jesus describes what it means to follow, he's like, deny yourself, carry your cross, lose your life. And that that bar is pretty high. It's not enough for me, or I don't think anyone in here, just to casually say, yeah, I follow Jesus with all of who I am. Man, like, really? I think Peter probably felt pretty good in that moment, saying three tenths. Here's what's wild to me. Peter, earlier in chapter 9, you know what he does? He actually confesses that Jesus is Christ. Ironic, he says... Other people are saying that you're Elijah, which is just an interesting foreshadowing to Elijah. The Bible's really cool. He confesses Christ. How easy is it for us to confess Christ, but still need the lesson of saying, deny self. Everything else is gone, and it's just Jesus that I'm following. Is there something that can be more countercultural than this? Think about our world. It's all about leading yourself, leading to good things, choosing your own path, choosing your own truth. And this says follow. This says deny. And in the world, man, it's, it's all about indulging, right? 
How good can you get your life to be and how content can you get yourself to be and how much can you give yourself and the people around you and this is success, this is the American dream, this is a life of just indulgence and and, and we, we are surrounded by it here to carry a cross, oh my goodness, to daily pursue a life of discipline outside of something for ourselves is so countercultural. The world is all about just devoting your schedule, your routine, your habits to your body and yourself and what you want here. This is totally different. To, to die so that we can live, the world lives in a fear of dying. And they don't want to lose anything of themselves. This is my one life that I want to live, and I'm going to make the best of it for myself. It's totally different than everything to the call of Christ, which means we should look so different in all of our pursuit of following. And it's not abnormal. It's just really common for anyone following Jesus. Our culture is obsessed with ourselves. We've normalized self-exaltation to a level where we downplay what it means and looks like to have all of those disappear in a moment, to be left alone with only Jesus, and that would be enough. We miss, I'll say for myself, and maybe you could agree, I have normalized for myself a pursuit of Jesus that is far less intense than what Jesus speaks about in verse 23. Our reflex and impulse is to shape everything to our liking instead of who he is. Here's a few things I thought of just as we close. As I'm thinking through for myself, what does it mean? Self-denial. Only Jesus. No tense for anyone else. It's just Jesus. Here's some thoughts uh, that I have uh, about it. Maybe this, some of these are good ideas for you. Maybe you need to think of your own things. Um, here's one. Uh, how about a social media fast this week? And we just don't go on social media this week and we just see what happens in our hearts and our devotion when we just put that off to the side and we don't allow that teaching and that influence in our lives. As you feel the cravings to go for it, you deny yourself for the sake of more time with Jesus and focused on him. How about this? Uh, time and prayer in your day before you talk to anyone else. And this means before you check your text messages or notifications or emails, and a first conversation of your days with Jesus. Um, that sounds like it could be helpful. How about this one? Take a, take a teaching of Jesus. Maybe it's something that we looked at already in this passage. Write it down. Carry it in your pocket in this week. And when you have free time, look at it and just ask God to transform you more to the teaching of what that says about who Jesus is asking you to be. So it's just him that is transforming you and you're just following him. How about this? Um, if you don't have regular time in his word, that's where it starts. Uh, So how about making a commitment this week to the first thing in your day all week is just time with Jesus. If you don't have a spot to start, maybe you start in the book of Luke. could be a great spot uh, just to get the teachings and the words of Jesus. What did God say? Listen to him. Just keep putting his words into our mind and following it. Weakness... uh, Sometimes it seems too complicated or hard in our following, and we don't really want God to get into those spots, what it means to follow him. And so sometimes we don't want him to touch that. But I just invite all of us just to ask God, where am I not following? Where have I set up a tent for someone else that needs to be for you? Where is it split devotion? 
So I want us to respond and worship today. And, and as you are, be sensitive to how the Spirit puts on your heart what it means for Jesus alone. Listen, all of us, all of us, all of us, young, old, all of us, have some area where we can grow and we can learn from that. So I pray that we would let God do that in our life. God, um, what an amazing teaching from your word today. I uh, just ask that you would do the work to apply it, that you would show our hearts, teach us what it means uh, to follow you with all of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.